Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Saturday, April 23rd, 2022, and this show will be rebroadcast on Monday, April 25th, 2022, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 105th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness with your host, Pedro Gatos. Tonight, just one week and two days after the 157th anniversary of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, we dedicate this part two show to all of those African Americans of our country that have suffered from systemic racism. We also end the show with an update from Mike Whitney, investigative journalist on the pending Russia-Ukraine conflict and the pending Russia offensive. Enjoy. Welcome. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. Last week, in part one of our systemic racism primer on or about the 157th anniversary of Abraham Lincoln's assassination, we presented an important overview on how the nature of systemic racism has reared its head through our history in different epochs in different ways, with slavery, of course, being the first phase, and that was followed by a short period of Reconstruction, which was subverted by Jim Crow period once the Union forces had left the South. And that Jim Crow period had its means and methods that we discussed last week, and it extended its epoch through 1964 with the passage of the Civil Rights Act. And then it was followed by the epoch of modern forms of discrimination. In other words, only the means and methods of racism and the subjugation of equal rights and access to financial stability for blacks has changed. The oppression has remained. Blacks continue to be subjugated through these modern day forms of discrimination that we detailed last week and empirically documented. We again talked about how the 13th Amendment, the Emancipation Proclamation, included a loophole that allowed for the subjugation of blacks by criminalizing their behavior through restrictive laws known as black codes that were designed to limit the freedom of African Americans and ensure their availability as a cheap labor force. Um, Once they became criminals, then they could be subjugated to and were subjugated to convict leasing. And the black codes were those very shady laws that criminalized black behavior and allowed them to be incarcerated. Last week, we then talked about how the 1935 Social Security Act was biased in its application, as well as the 1944 GI Bill. And as a result, the great racial wealth divide did not recede. It actually expanded. We documented unequal incarceration rates for blacks, 
and documented environmental racism, redlining, housing discrimination, and subprime mortgage rates. And so as we turn to this week's show, we wanted to also, in some detail, document a process called weathering that Dr. Arlene Geronimus coined back in the 1990s that describes how just being black means being subject to levels of stress that actually chip away at the health and quality of life of African-Americans resulting in lost years of life. But not just years of life, also quality of life. As a segue to that discussion, first wanted to share with you a very important and insightful overview of how discrimination creates stress in a number of ways that has been outside of public scrutiny. In a stunning overview, actually presented back in 2016, Dr. David Williams, who has extensively presented and written on issues of the adverse effect on African-American health by racism that he actually presented in 2016, so keep that in mind. And we'll go ahead with the introduction to that piece right now. He eloquently talks about how systemic racism creates health disparities well into the 21st century. This is a 15-minute or so overview presentation by PhD Dr. David R. Williams, Master in Public Health. He's uh, at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He describes how racism impacts health and makes us sick. How does race matter so profoundly for health? Dr. Williams developed a scale to measure impact of discrimination on well-being, going beyond traditional measures like income and education to reveal how factors like implicit bias, residential segregation, and negative stereotypes create and sustain inequality. He reveals evidence for how racism is producing a rigged system and offers hopeful examples of programs across the country that are working to dismantle discrimination. This talk was in November 2016. Enjoy and reflect. An article in the Yale Alumni Magazine told the story of Clyde Murphy, a black man who was a member of the class of 1970. Clyde was a success story. After Yale and a law degree from Columbia, Clyde spent the next 30 years as one of America's top civil rights lawyers. He was also a great husband and father. But despite his success, personally and professionally, Clyde's story had a sad ending. In 2010, at the age of 62, Clyde died from a blood clot in his lung. Clyde's experience was not unique. Many of his black classmates from Yale also died young. In fact, the magazine article indicated that 41 years after graduation from Yale, the black members of the class of 1970 had a death rate that was three times higher than that of the average class member. It's stunning. America has recently awakened to a steady drumbeat of unarmed black men being shot by the police. What is even a bigger story is that every seven minutes, a black person dies prematurely in the United States. That is 
over 200 black people die every single day who would not die if the health of blacks and whites were equal. For the last 25 years, I have been on a mission to understand why does race matter so profoundly for health. When I started my career, many believed that it was simply about racial differences in income and education. I discovered that while economic status matters for health, there is more to the story. So for example, if we look at life expectancy at age 25, at age 25, there's a five-year gap between blacks and whites. And the gap by education for both whites and blacks is even larger than the racial gap. At the same time, at every level of education, whites live longer than blacks. So whites who are high school dropouts live 3.4 years longer than their black counterparts. And the gap is even larger among college graduates. Most surprising of all, whites who have graduated from high school live longer than blacks with a college degree or more education. So why does race matter so profoundly for health? What else is it beyond education and income that might matter? In the early 1990s, I was asked to review a new book on the health of black America. I was struck that almost every single one of its 25 chapters said that racism was a factor that was hurting the health of blacks. All of these researchers were stating that racism was a factor adversely impacting blacks, but they provided no evidence. For me, that was not good enough. A few months later, I was speaking at a conference in Washington, D.C., and I said that one of the priorities for research was to document the ways in which racism affected health. A white gentleman stood in the audience and said that while he agreed with me that racism was important, we could never measure racism. We measure self-esteem, I said. There's no reason why we can't measure racism if we put our minds to it. And so I put my mind to it and developed three scales. The first one captured major experiences of discrimination, like being unfairly fired or being unfairly stopped by the police. But discrimination also occurs in more minor and subtle experiences. And so my second scale, called the Everyday Discrimination Scale, captures nine items that captures experiences like you're treated with less courtesy than others. You receive poorer service than others in restaurants or stores, or people act as if they're afraid of you. This scale captures ways in which the dignity and the respect of people whose society does not value is chipped away on a daily basis. Research has found that higher levels of discrimination are associated with the elevated risk of a broad range of diseases from blood pressure to abdominal obesity to breast cancer to heart disease and even premature mortality. Strikingly, some of the effects are observed at a very young age. For example, a study of black teens found that those who reported higher levels of discrimination as teenagers had higher levels of stress hormones, of blood pressure, and of weight at age 20. However, the stress of discrimination is only one aspect. Discrimination 
and racism also matters in other profound ways for health. For example, there's discrimination in medical care. In 1999, the National Academy of Medicine asked me to serve on a committee that found, concluded based on the scientific evidence, that blacks and other minorities receive poorer quality care than whites. This was true for all kinds of medical treatment, from the most simple to the most technologically sophisticated. One explanation for this pattern was a phenomenon that's called implicit bias or unconscious discrimination. Research for decades by social psychologists indicate that if you hold a negative stereotype about a group in your subconscious mind, and you meet someone from that group, you will discriminate against that person. You will treat them differently. It's an unconscious process. It's an automatic process. It is a subtle process, but it's normal, and it occurs even among the most well-intentioned individuals. But the deeper that I delved into the health impact of racism, the more insidious the effects became. There is institutional discrimination, which refers to discrimination that exists in the processes of social institutions. Residential segregation by race, which has led to blacks and whites living in very different neighborhood contexts, is a classic example of institutional racism. One of America's best kept secrets is how residential segregation is the secret source that creates racial inequality in the United States. In America, where you live determines your access to opportunities in education, in employment, in housing, and even in access to medical care. One study of the 171 largest cities in the United States concluded that there is not even one city where whites live under equal conditions to blacks, and that the worst urban context in which whites reside is considerably better than the average context of black communities. Another study found that if you could eliminate statistically residential segregation, you would completely erase black-white differences in income, education, and unemployment, and reduce black-white differences in single motherhood by two-thirds, all of that driven by segregation. I have also learned how the negative stereotypes and images of blacks in our culture literally create and sustain both institutional and individual discrimination. A group of researchers have put together a database that contains the books, magazines, and articles that the average college-educated American would read over their lifetime. It allows us to look within this database and see how Americans have seen words paired together as they grew up in this society. So when the word black appears in American culture, what co-occurs with it? Poor, violent, religious, lazy, cheerful, dangerous. When white occurs, the frequently co-occurring words are wealthy, progressive, conventional, stubborn, successful, educated. So when a police officer overreacts when he sees an unarmed black male and perceives him to be violent and dangerous, we are not necessarily dealing with an inherently bad cop. We may be simply viewing 
a normal American who is reflecting what he has been exposed to as a result of being raised in this society. From my own experience, I believe that your race does not have to be a determinant of your destiny. I migrated to the United States from the Caribbean island of St. Lucia in the late 1970s in pursuit of higher education. And in the last 40 years, I have done well. I've had a supportive family. I have worked hard. I have done well. But it took more for me to be successful. I received a minority fellowship from the University of Michigan. Yes, I am an affirmative action baby. Without affirmative action, I would not be here. But in the last 40 years, black America has been less successful than I have. In 1978, black households in the United States earned 59 cents for every dollar of income whites earned. In 2015, black families still earn 59 cents for every dollar of income that white families receive. And the racial gaps in wealth are even more stunning. For every dollar of wealth that whites have, black families have six pennies and Latinos have seven pennies. The fact is, racism is producing a truly rigged system that is systematically disadvantaging some racial groups in the United States. To paraphrase Plato, there is nothing so unfair as the equal treatment of unequal people. And that's why I am committed to working to dismantling racism. I deeply appreciate the fact that I am standing on the shoulders of those who have sacrificed even their lives to open the doors that I have walked through. I want to ensure that those doors remain open and that everyone can walk through those doors. Robert Kennedy said, each time a man or woman, I would add, stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lot of others or strikes out against injustice, he sends forth a tiny ripple of hope. And those ripples can build a current that can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. I am optimistic today because all across America, I have seen ripples of hope. The Boston Medical Center has added lawyers to the medical team so that physicians can improve the health of their patients because the lawyers are addressing the non-medical needs their patients have. Loma Linda University has built a gateway college in nearby San Bernardino so that in addition to delivering medical care, they can provide job skills and job training to a predominantly minority, low-income community members so that they will have the skills they need to get a decent job. In Chapel Hill, North Carolina, the Abyssidarian Project has figured out how to ensure that they have lowered the risk for heart disease for blacks in their mid-30s by providing high-quality daycare from birth to age five. In after-school centers across the United States, Wintley Phipps and the U.S. Dream Academy is breaking the cycle of incarceration by providing high-quality academic enrichment and mentoring to the children of prisoners and children who are falling behind in school. In Huntsville, Alabama, Oakwood University, a historically black institution, is showing how we can improve the health of black adults 
by including a health evaluation as a part of freshman orientation and giving those students the tools they need to make healthy choices and providing them annually a health transcript so they can monitor their progress. And in Atlanta, Georgia, purpose-built communities has dismantled the negative effects of segregation by transforming a crime-ridden, drug-infested public housing project into an oasis of mixed-income housing, of academic performance, of great community wellness, and of full employment. And finally, there is the divine solution. Professor Patricia Devine of the University of Wisconsin has shown us how we can attack our hidden biases head on and effectively reduce them. Each one of us can be a ripple of hope. This work will not always be easy, but former Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall has told us we must dissent. We must dissent from the indifference. We must dissent from the apathy. We must dissent from the hatred and the mistrust. We must dissent because America can do better, because America has no choice but to do better. Thank you. The work that Dr. Williams has done is stunning work in a number of areas around the effects of racism and many of its unseen dimensions. One that's not often talked about is just the dignity of being a human being and being treated less than a human being or treated as a second-class citizen over a whole lifetime is really a terrible experience to have to be subjected to through most of your whole life. He talks, Dr. Williams, that is, about chronic stress that's connected to these forms of everyday discrimination. He suggests that there is a way to measure that stress in your day-to-day life. How often do these types of things happen to you would be the questionnaire, and they would include questions probing undignified experiences blacks may have experienced, such as you are treated with less courtesy than other people, you receive poorer services than others at restaurants or stores, people act as if they think you are not smart, people act as if they are afraid of you, people act as if they think you are dishonest, people act as if they're better than you are, you are called names or insulted, you are threatened or harassed. All of these issues are things that occur without second thought, and it's part of this concept of weathering that we'll get to in just a second. But the science has shown that everyday discrimination and having to sustain throughout a lifetime of these different forms of discrimination can create higher risks for coronary artery calcification, uh, C-reactive proteins, which are found in blood plasma and is a biomarker for inflammation when concentrations are elevated, higher blood pressure, lower birth rates, cognitive impairments, poor sleep, mortality, more visceral fat. In other words, just as poverty kills, so does discrimination. It chips away at the soul of your humanity if you're African-American. And at the same time, makes you more vulnerable to a host of negative health issues. So when we talk about the toll that systemic racism has on people of color, one of the subjects that's 
more recent science that we wanted to end this segment with coverage on has to do with a term called weathering. As we mentioned earlier, it was coined by Dr. Arlene Geronimus in the 1990s. And Dr. Geronimus was a former guest of Bringing Light into Darkness, during which she explained her concept of weathering. It's a combination of physiological outcomes that come from being overstressed over an extended period of time, combined with the additional stress, if you will, from discrimination. Her hypothesis on weathering was further validated by newer technologies, including ways to measure telomere length. Telomeres, which is the DNA sequences at the end of chromosomes, and they were shown to be shorter in black women than in white women and in blacks generally, indicating the effect of discrimination biologically upon African Americans. These shorter telomeres in the scientific community are considered proof of a more advanced biological age. But before we share this important work by Arlene Geronimus and the nature of weathering, we need to take a brief pause for the cause. I want to remind you that this is the premier community radio station of the nation, 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness, and we will return right after this brief pause for the cause. <laughs> 